Good morning. Good morning. Man, there's a bunch more here than there was at 9.30. I appreciate your presence. Did somebody let the word out there was food coming up after this? Somebody, somebody say that? You know, we've got one or two that seems like every time we have a meal, lo and behold, we have these same visitors. But we're glad to get them no matter what, and we're glad you're here. Whether you came to feast on the Word of God or feast on the fried chicken, I'm glad you're here. I'm just assuming there's fried chicken in the room. I mean, this is the Lord's people, and, you know, it is a potluck. So, uh, But anyway, it's, it's good to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to come back and be a part of your friends and family day, and then gospel meeting as well. That's a special time, and I'm kind of curious who's family and who's friends, but that really doesn't make any difference, does it? It's, uh, I'm guessing there's probably a lot of folks here that are kin somehow, and then some that are just your friends, and that's always good. And if you're not a regular member here at New Antioch and you're visiting because one of the members asked you to be here, then thank you for coming. And I hope that the next few minutes and what we've done already and what we'll do between now and the amen in just a little bit will be beneficial for you, for me, and for each one of us here in attendance. What we want to look at, we looked at the Sunday, the Sunday school lesson about walking with confidence. We talked about Paul, how that he said, I'm persuaded that God is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. Paul walked or lived his life with a confident trust in God and a belief, not because of his perfection, but because of God's promises and Christ's perfection through the grace that God gave Paul and is willing to give to all who come to him in faithful obedience. Paul knew that he was heaven bound when this life was over. Again, not because he knew he was perfect, far from it. He knew he wasn't, but he knew God through particularly God the Son, Christ on this earth was perfect. And that when God the Father says, you do this, and I will give you this, Paul knew, I'm living my life like this, so God has promised me this. You know, eternal life is conditioned upon our obedience, Matthew 7, verse 21, to the will of the Father who is in heaven. So Paul... And we should, as well, walk in confidence. And then I want to look at now a fellow, an example of that, <clears throat> from the Old Testament, and a couple of mentions in the New Testament as well, of a man who took walks with God. If you turn to Genesis chapter 5, <clears throat> I'm going to begin in 21 and read about four verses. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Enoch took walks with God. Two little girls one time were in Sunday school. And the teacher was talking to him about Enoch, and one of them wasn't familiar with Enoch at all. And so she asked the other little girl, said, who, who is this Enoch? And the, and the girl that knew, she said, oh, he's a man way back a long time ago, back in the Old Testament, that took walks with God. And one day, apparently, he and God were walking, and they walked so far from Enoch's house that God just said, Enoch, why don't you just come on home with me? And he did. And that's pretty much what happened. Enoch walked with God and apparently never needed to experience physical death. 
Now, I would ask you if this is a class, name the one other person that we know of in Scripture, and he's also from the Old Testament, that did not experience physical death but was taken home. And, of course, that would be that great prophet, Elijah, who wasn't carried in the chariot of fire. That separated him from Elisha, but he went in the whirlwind and was ascended to the Father. Enoch is the second of the old elders, if you will, the original in that lineage from Adam, Seth, Enoch, Canaan, Mahalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, and so on. He was the second one of those who received a good report because of his faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, we can look at verse 2, or actually verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And then two, for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. Then we drop down, Abel is mentioned first, and then we go to verse 5. By faith Enoch was taken away, so that he did not see death, and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For they that come to him must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Enoch had this testimony. He walked with God. Now it's interesting. By inspiration, Moses, who we know wrote the Pentateuch, or the first five books of Scripture of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Moses, and again, he was inspired by God. He passed over Enoch's life in only four verses. That's pretty much it. What I read for you from Genesis chapter 5, that's all we read. In Scripture, at least in the Old Testament, in Moses' record, of Enoch. And yet he was enshrined in Hebrews 11, Faith's Hall of Fame. And there's more to his story than just what meets the eye in those four short verses in Genesis chapter 5. So we're going to do regular preacher stuff. We're going to take four verses and make a whole sermon out of it. You know, preachers, we can talk for a long time about nothing. And so hopefully that's not what this is going to be. But we'll look at this and look at Enoch's life and try to extrapolate, expand some things that we can infer and that we know from maybe other passages about the life of Enoch and how he walked with God. First of all, that's the thing that we know. That's one of the four facts about Enoch that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt. Because Genesis 5 verse 22 tells us in no uncertain terms, Enoch walked with God. Now the average person, so they say when I look this up, walks 189 miles per year. And on average, that journey is 0.6 miles. So the average person walks 189 miles a year. And those, the, if you take all of the times that person walked and you divide it by how far it, it averages out to six-tenths of a mile per walk. Now, I'm telling you, I don't know this for a fact, but I have an idea they average this out from all over the world because I don't think in this country... Most of us average when we walk six-tenths of a mile walking. Now, 
You may be one of those that gets out and walks every evening or every morning for health, and that's fantastic. I need to do a lot more of that. But according to what I looked up, 80% of all journeys that are under a mile, when a person needs to go somewhere and it's less than a mile, 80% of those trips are made on foot. Now, this next part, I don't doubt at all, probably comes from the United States. The most popular reason for walking, you don't have to answer, but just think about it for a second. What would you say? Where do you spend probably more time walking than in any other endeavor? Now yours, it could be on your job, I don't know. But the number one reason for walking is shopping. If you think about it, you know, I do the grocery shopping in our family. Janice can't stand to shop. It's amazing. You know, I don't know what the deal is, and I love it. I can go to Walmart, walk around for an hour and a half, not buy a thing, and just be happy as a lark. You know, I go to Cabela's in Huntsville all the time, look around, rock around, pick up a gun here, pick up a gun there, you know, pick up a bow, and I own all that stuff. I got more than I can use. In fact, I'm trying to sell some because my gun safe won't hold them all, and yet I can go do that for an hour or two, walk out not having spent a penny, and I'm just, that's fine with me. You know, I love shopping. Of course, I think probably, you know, a while back, I like to, I take a multivitamin. I take about 10 supplements actually every morning, but one of them's a multivitamin. And uh, I'm trying to take a leave right now for arthritis. I tell you what, this whole day, is it arthritis weather? It doesn't seem like it ought to be, but man, my thumbs are right here where they connect to my, whoo! And so if I shake your hand, I'm not squeezing hard, I apologize. I normally do. But man, alive, both of them this morning are going nuts. I don't know what that's all about, but had shoulder surgery a couple of months ago, and I, he said, oh yeah, bursitis. Right. The Itis brothers are just making a living at my, with me right now. I don't know what's going on. But anyway, bursitis, arthritis, bone spurs, you know, I'm, I'm waiting. I've already been told my right knee has to be done for the second time because i got another torn cartilage. And the doctor said, well, we don't need a knee replacement yet. And I'm like, I'm never having one of those. He said, ha. <laughs> Yeah, it's falling apart. That's why the car... Anyway, so, you know, I'm falling apart. But regardless of all that, you know, we walk. And so I try to take supplements to try to help as much of the ailments as I think they will. And But I ran out of... I had these, you know, I, I go to Walmart, so I get great value stuff. And, you know, Centrum, but you can get the same thing in great value for half price. So I had these 50-year-old-plus men vitamins for men. And I bought a big jar of the 50-year-old-plus vitamins for women. Well, my wife didn't take vitamins, apparently. I ran through my vitamins for men. And I thought, I'm not going to spend any more money. There can't be that much difference. So for about the last four or five months, I've been taking these multivitamins for women. I don't know if that's why I enjoy shopping so much or not. And I will tell you this, if I had the money, I would have a closet full of shoes. I mean, I got too many clothes in there now I can't wear. And it, Well, that's my fault. You know, have, have y'all ever had this problem? I got out of suit just the other day. And hanging in my closet, that suit shrunk. Have y'all ever? I mean, I don't know what happened. Amen, you ever had that happen? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't get it, but it's, it happened. But anyway, the point is, most of the walking is done while we're shopping, 23% of it, in fact. And that's followed by business or walking with a friend, that's 21%. And then leisure is 20% of 
why we walk. But Enoch, it wasn't necessarily talking about his walking like one foot in front of the other, left, right, left, right. It was how he lived his life. Abraham's walking partner, or I'm sorry, Enoch's walking partner was God. But Abraham, he walked before God. Genesis chapter 17 verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. Now the idea of walking before God is he's watching. He's like right behind us if you want to call it that. Or we're walking in his presence is more what that means. So we are open to God's inspection. <clears throat> the nation of Israel walked after God. Deuteronomy chapter 13 verse 4. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. So that is if I walk after, I follow God, he provides me direction. So I'm walking, understanding, I'm open to his inspection. I need to be walking, understanding that I'm following his direction. And then we look at Paul, he walked in God. Colossians chapter 2 verse 6, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And he told, you remember the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers that day in Athens, up on Mars Hill, the Areopagus, where all the temples were, and he saw this, this idol to the unknown God. He said, let me tell you about the one you don't know. And in Acts 17, verse 28, he's talking about God, and he said, in him, in God, we live and move and have our very being. He understood it's God who gives life and breath to all things. Without God, there would be no us. He walked in Christ, understanding even that his physical life, was as a result of God. Now the best place to walk, when you can walk before God, after God, the best place to walk is with God. Because that refers to a righteous life. You remember Genesis chapter 6 verse 9 talking about Noah. Noah was a man who pleased God because he walked with God. He lived his life the way God wanted and consequently God chose him to build the ark and to provide a remnant, a very small one. Did you know, I did a sermon on this a year or two ago and kind of looked it up. Population experts, and I don't know if I did this, I may have done this lesson here three years ago, I don't know, Noah, one in, you know, a billion. Population experts that do these kind of things estimate that in the days of Noah, because the length of life of people and the, the fruitfulness of, of, of men and women and so on, that in the days of Noah, there were probably between 350 and one to two, 350 million and one to two billion people on the planet during the time of Noah. Just take that conservative estimate: 350 million people. How many of them served God? Eight. You think we got it bad? Think about Noah, his own family. You read through that genealogy. Methuselah. You know what year Methuselah died? The year of the flood. You figure it all out, add it all up, and he died the year. Now, he either died in the flood with the other wicked folks, or he just happened to die that same year. But everybody, the thought continually evil away from God. I mean, Noah was an amazing man. Why? Because he walked with God. In 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 6, and Solomon said, 
You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. And in Micah, that Old Testament prophet wrote in chapter 6 verse 8, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. What does God want in every generation? Even under the law of Moses and today, under the New Testament of Jesus Christ, the principles are still true. Do justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. The Hebrew form of the verb that's used there about Enoch, how he walked with God, is a verb that means Enoch walked closely and continually. With God, It wasn't just a one-time thing, it was the way he lived his life. And as surely as doctors will tell you, walking is good for your physical health, walking with God is very good for our spiritual health. In Romans chapter 8 verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What's that? If I want to know in my life that when this life is over, there will be no condemnation for me now or in judgment or in eternity ever, then I need to walk with God. That's the idea. I need to be in Christ Jesus and walking according to the Spirit, which is the inspiring agency of Scripture. I walk according to the will of God. We talked about it in our class. 1 John 1, 7, we walk in the light. The light of God's word, Psalm 119, verse 105. And I can always be in good standing with the Father. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Paul writes, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the vocation with which you were called, or of the calling with which you were called. What's that? Walk worthy. Walk. How I live my life matters. Colossians chapter 1 verse 10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And then, as he wrote again in the Ephesian letter, chapter 5 verse 15, walk circumspectly, that is, pay attention. Walk circumspectly, not as fools. I don't need to just blow through life like a bull in a china shop. I need to recognize what's going on around me and take advantage of the opportunities that God gives me. This may be one this morning. And if there's somebody here, for instance, that's not a child of God, never been as Jesus told them. You remember when Jesus met with Nicodemus that night in Palestine? John records it in John chapter 3. Nicodemus, Nicodemus, boy, I can't even get his name out. Nicodemus! He was a, read it, you'll find it. It's in John chapter 3. You can pronounce it better than I can. Anyway, he came to Jesus by night. We don't know why, probably for fear of the Jews, because there's a very good chance Nicodemus was actually one of the Sanhedrin council members that had Jesus put to death a, a year or two or three later. But the point is, he came to Jesus, and that evening, you know, he talked to Jesus, and Jesus told him, said, I'm telling you something. He said, if you're not born again, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And Nicodemus said, what? I'm a grown man. You mean I need to go back into my mother's womb a second time and be born? And of course, it's not what Jesus meant. And he knew, Nicodemus knew that isn't what he meant. And so Jesus said in verse 5, he said, I'm just telling you the truth. Except you be born of water, the baptism, and the Spirit, God's Spirit-given Word, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Have you been baptized or born again? That's a very popular conception in the religious world, and it means a lot of things to a lot of people, but in Scripture, it means I've been obedient to the will of God as it concerns having a new life, having a spiritual birth, if you will. And that happens when I am buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should rise to walk in newness of life. That's Romans 6, 3 and 4. That burial is when I put to death the old man of sin through a penitent heart without which I'll perish without repentance, Luke 13, 3, Luke 13, 5, and Acts chapter 3, verse 19, repent and be converted that times refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I need to turn to God. All of it. So when with a penitent heart, I determine in my own life, I'm going to stop living for sin and Satan. I'm going to kill that old man that's doing that. And I'm going to become a new child of God. I bury that old man of sin in the watery grave of baptism. And God, Colossians 2 around verse 12, at that moment operates on me, he removes all the sin from my life, and I arise out of that watery grave to walk in newness of life. Now the preacher, whoever is assisting you in the submersion and, and rising back up, he's just someone that's helping. It's God that does the work. Christ paid the price on the cross and shed his blood, John 19, 32 through 34. We mentioned in class that Ephesians 1, 7 and also Colossians 1, 14 says basically the same thing. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, according to the riches of his grace. If it wasn't for the blood of Christ, nobody could have sins forgiven. But the only place I'm going to have that blood applied to my life is if I get to where it is. And where it is is in his death. And there's only one way that I can get in his death. And we already talked about it. Romans 6.3. I'm buried with him by baptism into death. And then God raises me to walk in newness of life. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians that second time. Chapter 5 verse 17. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. What's different? I still got the same job, I still look the same, I, I have drive the same car, live in the same house, but I am new in that all of my sins are forgiven. I have been added to God's family, which is the church, 1 Timothy 3.15, the household of God, to put on the ground the truth. And I now have a whole new purpose in life, and that is to please God and not self. And when I please God through serving others, I will have the best life going here and the only one that offers life in the hereafter. If you haven't done that, then walk circumspectly. That is, pay attention to what's going on around you. You are in a place today, right this very moment, where there's water right here in this baptistry and people praying for you, with you, and men that will be more than happy to assist you in being 
immersed in water for the forgiveness of sin, Acts 2.38. And you can become today a child of God if we pay attention to what's going on around us and take advantage of the opportunities. As Paul said, walk circumspectly, not as fools, redeeming the time. Because the days are evil. That's verse 16. I need to buy back from God what He's done for me as best I can. For the child of God, He has redeemed me or bought me back from sin and Satan. I need to live my life in such a way that to the best of my ability, I'll never be worth the sacrifice. I'll never be worth the price paid. But I need to live my life as best I can. And if I'm still outside of Christ, then I need to pay attention and take advantage of the opportunity given me, whether this morning or some other time, to understand the truth and become a child of God. And then I can walk with Him. First John 1 John 1.7, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, the blood of His Son continues to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. Enoch walked with God in a time of unbelievable darkness. And we already mentioned all the people on earth and the only ones that made it to the ark were eight folks. And I've often wondered, I don't know if you do, preachers probably wonder unusual things. You know, we're talking about, we understand Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now when you think about it, as fruitful as people were back then, and as long as they were in childbearing years, do you really believe that three children is all that Mr. and Ms. Noah had? It may be. That's the only ones that we have mentioned. But we've got to understand that genealogies are not given to tell us everybody that lived. They're given to make a lineage and provide a, tra a, a trace or ability uh, basically to bring the Christ. That's the idea. Sometimes generations are skipped in the genealogies. But the ones that are listed are there ultimately to provide a background for the coming of the Messiah. And that's the whole purpose. I kind of have an idea that Moses, Noah and Mrs. Noah had more than three boys. I kind of have an idea they couldn't even get all of their own kids on the ark. But they got the three. And I may be wrong. I don't want to indict anyone you know, unfairly. But it's just hard to imagine that they would only have three children when people were having, you know, kids by the who knows how many, just like Adam and Eve. If we think Cain, Abel, and Seth are the only children they had, I believe we are woefully mistaken. We, those are just the three that are mentioned because they are important in the role of the Old Testament to provide the beginning of sin and the beginning of animal sacrifice and the beginning of the shed blood to provide forgiveness that ultimately was all fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ and his death and burial and resurrection. Enoch walked with God when almost no one else did. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, We've been called out of darkness, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are, as children of God, supposed to be the children of the light. First Thessalonians 5, verse 5, You are all sons of light. And sons of the day, we are not of the night nor of darkness. Also, another thing we know about Enoch is that he prophesied of God. You go to Jude, the only chapter, verses 14 and 15. Now, Enoch, 
The seventh from Adam prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. He was the first man in the Bible who is said to have been a prophet of God. And he predicted that the Lord would come one day with his angels. And Jesus said in Matthew 25, 31-33, that the day is coming when the Son of Man will come with all his angels and all his glory, and he'll separate the sheep from the goats and so on. And it's likely, we don't know it for a fact, but it's likely that Enoch knew about the flood 300 years before it came. And obviously, he taught people in his day things that we don't have in the Old Testament recorded, because that's what Jude says. So who knows how much he may have tried to warn people even before Moses came on the scene, or Moses, Noah came on the scene. And then we know also that Enoch, Genesis 5 verse 24, was taken by God. He's one of only two humans, and we already mentioned Elijah is the other, that did not experience death. Hebrews 11.5, again, by faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. In a sense, this prefigures what's going to happen to faithful children of God when the Lord returns. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about be changed in the twinkling of an eye and so on. Those who are alive at the time of the Lord's return will not experience physical death. They will just be translated or changed into that incorruptible body and go on to the day of judgment. Those who have been have died in the past will be resurrected, and that corruptible body that was planted, buried, will be changed into an incorruptible body. Enoch was not found. That's interesting to me. He was not found, for God took him. That seems to imply to me that people looked for him, that he was appreciated. He had folks that cared about him. They looked for him. A good man, when he's gone, is missed. And a good woman as well. And then finally, another fact we know about Enoch is that he pleased God. We already noted Hebrews 11, 5, and 6. Enoch pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. Walking by faith will in fact please God. 1 John 3.22, whatever we ask we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do things that are pleasing in His sight. So I need to ask myself the questions. Is God pleased with the way I use my time? Remember Ephesians 5.16, redeem the time, buy it back because the days are evil. Is God pleased with what I read? Philippians 4.8 says whatever things are lovely, just, pure, of good report, virtuous, think on these things. Are the things I read, do they encourage that kind of thinking or other kinds of thinking? Is God pleased with the words I speak? Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Salt does two things. It preserves, I need to use my words to save, not tear down, and salt makes things taste better. When you've been put on a no-salt diet because your blood pressure is too high, you know, I'm, I'm not there, but I mean, those that have, you know what I'm talking about. You don't get to salt your food, it's just something missing, it doesn't taste the same. So I need to speak in a way that saves and preserves, because you know, back in the old days when they had to, you know, the smokehouse, and you wrapped that ham in salt and wrapped it up, and that salt preserved it, next thing you know, after a while, you had a good old country ham, and red-eye gravy, and well, we don't need to go there, I'm, we got food and I'm getting hungry. The point is, 
that salt preserves and salt makes things taste better. Is my speech done in such a way that it saves, not builds, builds, not saves, not tears down? And I speak in tones and words that people are willing to swallow? That I can put things in a way that I don't offend people any more than necessary? I need to watch. Is God pleased with the words I speak? Is God pleased with my plans for the future? And do I even consider God when I'm planning for the future? You know the half-brother of Jesus, James, by inspiration, wrote in chapter 4, around 13 through 15, he said, come on now, you folks who say, I'm going to go to such and such a city, I'm going to set up a business, I'm going to stay there a year or so, I'm going to buy and sell and make a profit. He said, how can you say that? Because you don't know what your life is. Life is short. It's just vapor. It appears for a little time and then it vanishes away. You would be better to say, if the Lord wills, I will do such and such. Do I include God in my plans or do I just say, I'm going to go do and never give God a thought? Am I pleasing Him with what I'm planning for my future? If God started right now and just came on down and started inviting people that walk with Him to go home with Him, would I be on the list? Would I be like Enoch? Would God say to me, Enoch, just come on to my house and you can live with me forever. If God did that right now, would I get the invite or would I be left behind? If I'm not on God's invitation list, now is a really good time to start those walks with God. And if a public response this morning would start or restart that journey, then by all means, come down front while we stand and sing.